Welcome to the Sports Epreneur Podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide, a CadSource production. In this episode, I chat with Tim Kite, founder of Focus 3 and host of the Focus 3 Podcast with Urban Meyer. This episode exists because of CadSource. CadSource is your content team. You know how many business leaders need help communicating their story? That's what we do. Content strategy, creation, and distribution for business leaders. This provides opportunities, relationships, and a platform for you and your business. Why do we do this? Because at CadSource, we exist to help you create and share amazing content. And yes, you should have a podcast. We'll help you. Learn more by visiting kezcontent.com. We discuss many topics, including motivation, uncommon people, and wide receiver Michael Thomas. Tim's business has a mission to help companies around the world align the power of leadership, culture, and behavior to achieve next-level results. I first learned of Tim Kite when Ohio State shared the leadership program they'd started after the 2012 season. Hearing how they identified freshman JT Barrett as an elite leader had me intrigued by what was to come with the Buckeyes. Sure enough, in 2014, Ohio State won the national championship against a national perception and in the face of much adversity. As I continued to pay attention to the program, it was obvious the strong leadership the program had, and I came to realize the impact Tim Kite was having behind the scenes. Eventually, I came across Tim's podcast, and it has been a podcast favorite of mine ever since I started listening to it. After connecting on LinkedIn and a long phone chat, we decided to do this podcast episode. I would encourage you to become a subscriber to the Focus 3 podcast. It will absolutely be a difference maker for you. For now, it's time to welcome Tim Kite. It's fun to have these conversations because it allows me to go back and do pull old things up, pull research up. So reading John Wooden's book, Wooden on Leadership, and you know, going back to some of my highlights or, or just kind of skimming different parts of it again and knowing that you come from that, right? You obviously had there's a lot there that you took and that are applying to your life today and continue to apply to your life and continue to learn. But really that's that's what this conversation today is all about. There was something, and another thing I did is I went back to Irv Meyer's book, uh, Above the Line. And it was interesting because I was doing a search in my Evernote and I, I knew I had some notes on it somewhere. And so I just pulled up a search of, of that book and I had just copy and pasted something from the book. And it was a quote, I think it was at the very beginning. He said, One of the core messages I hope you take away from this book is that the constant pursuit of knowledge and improvement, striving to make yourself better today than you were yesterday, is not merely an indispensable tenant. For leaders to follow, but one of the great joys of life. It is a pursuit that motivates me every day to be a better person, right? And it goes on from there. And so that I remember hit me because here is this college football coach of the college team that I, you know, have a lot of history with, with my family and all that. And he's talking about being better every day. And he talked about the joy of his life of doing this. He's got a lot of joys, I'm sure. That hit me because I was feeling the same thing, but then to hear someone else say it, like, that got me. And I, that's why I copied it into my Evernote. And I went back to it. And then here I am talking to you, Tim, or about to talk to you. And that struck me. That's why I love these conversations so much because I get to learn from it. We talk a lot about it on this podcast. Is If no one ever listened to this discussion between you and I, which isn't going to happen, but let's say they never did, I still had this conversation with you. I hope that you can take something from it or you helped me out or whatever that might be. But there is just a learning aspect of it. So I'm not sitting here and saying, well, what's my return on investment of that conversation I had with Tim? That's not what this is about. This is about becoming a better person, a better leader for for myself, for my family, for my business, for anybody else that I'm going to meet down the road. So these conversations to me are just... This is what it's all about, to continually learn 
And you know, hearing you and Urban Meyer talk about this on the Focus 3 podcast and how you're constantly assessing and reassessing and learning new things and coming across new things. It's like, wow, here are these incredible leaders. And they're doing it too. So of course, I should be doing it, right? And anyway, going back to that quote, it just means so much. And it means so much that you would even spend the time to chat with me today about all the things that you do in Focus 3 Podcast, your leadership, and all that. And one of the things I was doing is I was on LinkedIn, you know, checking out a couple of things. And you just had a video. It was a, your, one of your two minutes with TK. And you talked about everyone needs a noticer and a truth teller. And I actually made a comment on the post and you might see it later on. But as I'm watching it, it hits me. It's like, I think anyone that's really being honest with themselves can watch that video and they know who their noticer and their truth teller is. And, and you bring up marriage, right? Because there's a lot of conversations that go on with marriage. My wife is my noticer and my truth teller. And like you said in the video, maybe they're not 100% right all the time, but that's, that's not the point. The point is that take pay attention to that person. Maybe they're close enough yeah. to being right. Or maybe you're, you're trending in that direction. Watch out for that, right? There's these different things yeah. going on. We do this in our business as well. Yeah. John Priora in our company, he's taken on so much in our group that we call out the things that he's not doing correctly to help him get better. And he takes that and strives to be better. And to watch someone like that go from where he was to where he is today and where he's going to be in the future is a talk about joy, is a joy that I have in running a business to having someone like John on our team. And we can watch that thing play out because those are not easy conversations. And we're going to get into all that kind of stuff. But I want to talk first about that because that's recent. It was just in LinkedIn. You just posted it about being the notice, finding your noticer and your truth teller. So if you could, let's chat about that. And you know, when did you come to that, I guess, maybe that realization of just those words, noticer and truth teller? Yeah, I mean, the reality is anyone who reads literature or studies or research about continuous improvement and getting better and growing, whether you're a leader or a teammate or whatever, everyone has heard something along the lines of feedback is essential. Uh, Self-awareness and feedback are key to getting better at life. And along the way, different people have taken different ways of expressing it. and. I just I stumbled across. I think it might have been Andy Andrews. I, I had a book called The Noticer, and then I don't know if Truth Teller was in there or not. But I thought it was a very powerful way of describing getting feedback. And the, the Noticer idea and the Truth Teller idea is simply that there's limits to how much we can improve on our own without the feedback and the observation of other people. It's just a fact. We have blind spots. And worse, we're blind to our blind spots. We, when we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. And I, people laugh when I speak and I talk about self-awareness is when you lack self-awareness, you tend to be unaware that you lack self-awareness. And people laugh, but then it's like, yeah, that's true. And, and I, I recognized that years ago that, that the reality was we need other people in our lives who observe us and see us uh, and give us that feedback. And then there's another piece to this that's really important. It's a part of what, what we do all the time. And that is, we all tend to judge ourselves by our intentions. Others judge us by how they actually experience us. But let me say that again. We tend to judge ourselves by our intentions, whereas other people judge us by how they actually experience us. And those things aren't always in alignment. A lot of times we deliver an experience that isn't what we intended, but we don't know it. This is particularly true 
and it's amplified in leadership. The vast majority of people in leadership positions mean well. They have got good intentions, but they don't always behave in a way that delivers an experience that aligns with what they actually intend. And there's a whole host of reasons why. But that the feedback, that notice room truth teller is extremely powerful in helping us close the gap between the experience we want to deliver versus the experience we actually deliver. Does that make sense? It does. And it sounds like we feed ourselves that we had, the, like you said, we had the intention that someone is a leader. I did everything right in there. I said all the right things and they're just not understanding it. And so we feed ourselves these yeah. lies where if someone was looking at it or, under, or could understand it and they could give you feedback and say, here's where you're missing it. Yeah, I don't know if I'd go so far as... I mean, I think there, there is self-deception. I think there are times when we do feed ourselves lies. I wouldn't go that far most of the time. I think in my experience in doing this for a living, one, being a leader, and then two, consulting and training to leaders, I think it is... I think it is generally just a lack of awareness. And like I said earlier, blind spots. Yeah. I don't know that it's necessarily a deceptive thing as it is a blindness. And it's one of the things that we teach in our factor, E plus R equals O, is a very powerful truth. And it's this, that clarity of vision drives quality of response. And the, the way you see a situation to a great extent determines what you're going to do in response to the situation. And if you don't see it clearly, it's pretty difficult to respond effectively. And we don't always see things clearly. The human mind, the human brain, is not always clear. We have filters that we wear. We have lenses that obscure what we see. And I think clarity of vision, awareness of what's really going on, is one of the great skills that everyone needs to develop. And it's difficult. It's challenging. We don't see clearly. And there are reasons why. And feedback is obviously very helpful to say, okay, I didn't see that. Thank you for giving me that feedback. That was outside of my perception. Now that you tell me about that, oh, now it's on my radar screen. Didn't see that before. Or another thing that happens is we see something, but we discount it. And we don't give it the weight that it deserves. Someone else comes along and says, you know what? I think this, this, and this have a lot more weight than you've necessarily given to it. And you're going, ah, you know, that's a great point. Tell me why you say that. So it's very important that people have the skill and the discipline to expand their focus frame so they can see more clearly in order to respond more effectively. One of the great leadership skills, one of the great leadership disciplines that I've seen are those people, leaders who are humble enough to say, I need a noticer and a truth teller. I need feedback. I need to see what I don't see. I need to see things that I'm discounting so that I can more effectively respond, whether that's in a personal relationship or professional. That makes sense when you clarified what I was saying and, and talking about the blind spots because you just weren't seeing it and to have clarity yeah. in everything. And I've noticed in your podcast, and you've already done it here, and I have to imagine there's some clarity aspects to this is you repeat things. When you hit a statement, you'll stop. And sometimes you'll even say, let me repeat that. And you'll say it again. And you say it with a tone that now I got it. Or if I didn't get it, it's going to be easier because yeah. I can rewind it real quick or I can listen or I can take my note that I need to take whatever that is somewhere. It's getting, it's entering the brain again. Is that a part of your clarity yeah. to repeat things? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And it's interesting you picked up on that, Eric, because number one, I do it for myself. Number two, I do it from the audience or the, the folks I'm working with. And the brain needs time to process and repetition is very important to learning. And when you underscore, repeat something, emphasize it, there's going to be a, an emotional and a cognitive marker 
for that statement or that truth. So yes, I do that with great intention. Yeah. Well, it helps. <laughs> I mean, from my end, it, it helps to hear it because... And sometimes you say it in a even a more convincing way the second time, perhaps. Yeah, that's another rhetorical technique where you make a statement and you pause slightly. And then you say, let me repeat that. And then you, you repeat the statement with a little bit of a verbal emphasis that's different than the first time. Sure. But it's the same message. And you're right, that, that ends up stimulating. And there's cognitive science reasons for it, but it's also emotional, which stimulates more of the brain and it tends to imprint it or encode it more deeply in the human brain. And again, I do it for myself right. first, right, and then for for the audience second. Well, it's very thoughtful, right? Not thoughtful like to help someone else out, which it is, but like to think that far ahead or, mm-hmm. or about a topic, which is long form conversations. For example, it's very thoughtful to even spend the time to do these types of things. When you get that feedback, there's a couple of things that I'm seeing too. Is you're getting those hard truths, and it's those people that can accept those hard truths and do something with it. And you on your podcast, and I'm sure you talk about this in business as well, and you talk about Ermeyer, and I know he uses this word a lot, is uncommon. How are you going to be uncommon? And, and you've talked, like I said, you talked about it on podcasts before. It's not that easy. You bring up Michael Thomas as an example, as a wide receiver at Ohio State. If, if he's not the best receiver, he's certainly one of the best, the highest paid receiver in the NFL. And you hear stories, whether it was from you guys or from other people. I, I hear the story that when he went to New Orleans, you wanted to be the hardest worker there. And he goes and he gets there early and, and he's going to beat everyone there. He's going to do his workout. He's going to watch his film. And he's like, I want to beat Drew Brees at it because he heard Drew Brees is this incredible worker. So he's finishing his workout. And sure enough, Drew Brees has already done his workout. He comes out in a towel. He just finished his shower. <laughs> so there's always competition. There's amazing people that you can be around and put yourself. Those are two very uncommon people. And I want to talk a little bit about... you know, Because when you hear those hard truths with the feedback, well, then what are you going to do with it? Sometimes you could just... Mm, it gets you mad and whatever. You don't really do anything with it. It sounds like you and Ermeyer talk a lot about being uncommon and what are you going to do with that? And you know, working harder, taking that next step, working at night, working on the weekends, working out, you know, training your mind, being mentally tough. Want to get more into what it is to be uncommon? Yes, that's a that's a theme that connected Urban and me. He's been on this quest his entire life. I've been on this quest my entire life. When we met, it was one of several things we immediately said, oh, you too? Yeah, <laughs> me too. Great. Let's do that together. Let's figure that out. And one of the things that, that I don't know when exactly I introduced the science of this to him, but it was early on, but it's interesting that the whole notion of being uncommon, we're not talking about uncommon talent. We're talking about uncommon skill that is built through an uncommon work ethic, which you referenced earlier with Mike Thomas and Drew Brees. And the reality is that no one has a say on how much talent they were or were not born with. Talent's a gift. Uncommon's a choice. And that's a hugely important principle for everyone that's going to be listening to this. Talent's a gift. Uncommon is a choice. We use the word elite a lot or exceptional. Uncommon, those are all synonyms to us. And what I've learned, and this is something John Wooden taught me way back in the 70s, it's not about the talent you do or don't have. It's about the work that you do. And talent is available to people who are born with it, but next level skill is available to anyone willing to do the work to build it. I'm amazed at the scientific fact that the human brain has an unlimited capacity to build new skill. That fascinates me. 
the human brain can build skill that it wasn't born with. It can build skill beyond talent. Talent is a limiter for most people. Most people perform around their talent level and then they don't get better. Because beyond talent, something we call the edge, beyond talent, it's hard work. It's much more difficult to build a skill, obviously, you don't have talent for than it is to build a skill that aligns with your talent. What the elite do, what the uncommon do, is they aren't satisfied with the skills that align with talent. They want to build skill beyond talent. And that's what's really cool to be around these kind of people, to observe them. And it's really cool and, and, and unbelievably fulfilling to teach this to people who say, you know, I'm stuck at this spot. And great, well, what are you going to do to get beyond it? And there's what, what work you need to do. And it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to take a long time. Uh, there's going to be mistakes. But all these things come together. You learn from mistakes. You get feedback from your coaches. You embrace the productive discomfort at this edge where talent runs out. And you keep doing the work. You keep doing the work. You keep doing the work. And you're just relentless about doing that. And you know that if you keep doing the work, you will get a breakthrough. You will build a skill. Uh, recently, it's being called grit. That word has resurfaced again. And, and sure. it, it, But it's, just, it's perseverance. And it's amazing what you can build into your life if you just are relentless and willing to do the work over a long period of time. It's amazing. But most people quit all the way. So when it gets hard, most people bail, which is why we use the word uncommon. Because what's common is to quit. What's uncommon is to keep going. Right. It sounds easy, right? Well, it doesn't sound easy. It sounds hard. But it's difficult, right? Because you're going to inevitably run into a situation where it's not going to play out like you had planned or even could have remotely even thought of. Something bad's going to happen or whatever that might be. Well, I, I, I mean, inject right in there for a second, Eric. I mean, I, I give these keynotes all over the country and, and I, depending upon the topic, but I will often ask a group, how many of you, raise your hand if you, you have tried, some, tried to improve some area of your life and it got difficult and because it was difficult, you quit and raise your hand. And every audience, every hand goes up. Yeah. Everybody has that stuff in their life where they started working on something. It's January now, so it's 2020. This is the this is when the New Year's resolutions are being huh. implemented and right. executed. And it feels really good right now to be doing the new stuff that you said in 2020, I'm going to do this and this and this and stop doing that, that, and that. But what you discover along the way is, oh my gosh, it's hard. But you said something earlier, and I want to make a statement that I also emphasize, and that is if you want the great things in life, you have to say yes to the hard things. And that's one of those timeless truths that has simply been around. Well, it's timeless. It's been around from the beginning. And everybody wants great things. But the only way you get it is if you, is if you say yes to the hard things. It's just how it works. I like how you, it's, again, what you talked about before about you repeat things. You also pause to let it sink in because it matters. That's a mm -hmm. major statement mm -hmm. that you make. There's a component of it as a leader in a company and you bring people on to be a part of your business, your culture, what it is you're setting out to do, what it is that they're setting out to do. And you are going to come across people and some people are uncommon and some people are acting common. They're just pushing the buttons and they're putting in their time and then it's done. And then they go home and they don't want to think about it anymore. They say there's comments, there's thoughts that they want to be uncommon, but they're not willing to do those things. Now, you also talk a lot about on your podcast about pushing those people. Now, it's very difficult because 
how do you make that decision if this person is go- has the ability to become uncommon? Like you said before, you can learn these things. You can spend time working on your mental toughness, your grit, whatever all that is. That's a difficult thing for a leader to figure that out. There's a lot of time and emotion and energy that gets put into that to figure out, is this person going to get there or do we need to make a change? And I see this across all sorts of businesses. We deal with it at our business, right? And you're trying to figure out, is this person willing to go that next step? Or they want to be a part of this culture. Obviously, with you going around the world and, and working with companies and doing the keynote speeches, I, I'm assuming that you see this quite a bit, that people can understand this uncommon conversation, but then applying it to someone else when you're not inside their head to know, are they willing to take those extra steps? But that's very difficult for a business leader, for a business owner to figure out, what do we do from here? You make a great point. I, I'm not sure it's as difficult as we've all made it out to be. Obviously, the word uncommon means it's rare. Therefore, the common thing is for people not to do the next level work. However, I do think that if a leader is fully engaged, I've got a statement I make, I, and, and I, this is part of our leadership training and our leadership program called Mark of a Leader. We start with this. This is the very first thing that we teach in leadership skill. Leadership is a mindset first and a skill set second. That's what we teach. And we give them the mindset of the leaders written down. And I've got clients all over the place who actually have printed this out and they post it someplace uh, memorable where they can see it. And here's how a leader thinks. I'll often describe it this way. You pull up into the facility, you pull up in your car in the parking lot of your business, of your office building, of the project, of your school, of your team, where you pull up the parking lot. And before you get out of your car, you say this to yourself. Today, I get to lead with purpose, serve people, solve problems, and bring energy. Man, I love my job. And then go into the building, go into the office, go into the job site, go to the team, go into the school, and go do that. Lead with purpose, serve people, solve problems, and bring energy. And then you go do it. And during the day, if you lose that mindset, you look at that statement again and say, God, remember, today I get to lead with purpose, serve people, solve problems, and bring energy, and go do that. And what I've discovered, Eric, about that is those leaders who do that have this tremendous impact on people. And I'm certainly not going to claim that this uncommon, this breakthrough, this stuff we're talking about is easy, but I don't think it's as hard as people make it out to be. And for a leader to create that kind of an environment where every day the leader is bringing that kind of purposeful leadership activity, the vast majority of people are going to respond to that. I think one of the main reasons people don't respond to leaders is leaders give up. And I've seen this. I'll tell you, in big organizations, there's no question in my mind. And that is that employees, associates, have figured out that if we resist, leaders will quit at some point. That the commitment to resistance is greater in most organizations than the commitment to implementation. I've seen this over and over again. In some regards, I don't blame employees because every year or two, the company swaps things out for some new initiative and, and people and then they get tired of the program du jour and so they they lack the grit because they say well in two years they're gonna give up on this and try something different. I get that. But if a leader is just relentless and relentless and relentless and relentless, relentless positivity. Another way I'll say it is this is be relentlessly persistent and positive until people change or quit. Relentlessly yeah. positive and persistent until people change or quit. We live in a world today where so many people start and then stop, and people have become accustomed to that, and they expect that. 
if a leader doesn't stop and you know grabs people emotionally and intellectually and leans in and says, I love you, I love you, I care about you, and I care about our team, and I care about our organization, and you've got another level in you. And you know what? We're going to work on that together. Just so you know, I'm going to be relentless in pursuing to help you do that. Just so that you know. And then, and then fulfills that? You got to be almost brain dead not to respond to that. Right. But how many leaders actually do that? They yeah. get mad too soon. They get frustrated too soon. They get negative too soon. Now, not everybody's going to respond. I'm not naive. I mean, I'm out there, so I know. And there are going to be people who are truly cynical and they're not going to respond. Well, you put pressure on those people, positive pressure, until they either do respond or they're gone. Right. And are there times you need to fire them? Absolutely. But you got to make sure you've been relentless in the way you brought, you brought purposeful leadership to them. So I think we just need to be more persistent and more positive and more passionate as leaders. That's what I think. Well, that's well said. It plays itself out. And I think that's a thing that as a leader, we can all, if you are relentless, if you are doing those things that you just talked about, that that person will say, this isn't for me. I need to leave. Right? Yeah. Is going to get to that point. It's like, you didn't even have to fire the person because it wasn't for them. And, and that might be okay. It might not have been a fit. And they can go on mm-hmm. to do great things somewhere else. Right? So, you know, We're a small yeah. business, for example. Right. I've seen people come here and I've noticed that they were better off at a large organization with incredible structure. Right? With training manuals that have been in place for many, and there's nothing wrong with that at all, and vice versa. We've seen people yeah. come that were large companies, and they wanted the autonomy of a small business. They wanted impact. Right? Again, there's no right or wrong answer to these things, but I, I agree with it, and I and I appreciate you saying those things because it helps me, and I know it helps my business partner when we talk about these things to say to be relentless, to have that care, and you use the word love, and I think you just had a podcast about this, and you know, love is. A lot of what does that mean? How can you love someone? You, you know, but you care about where they're going, what they're trying to do. I'm going to let you talk about it. But if you have a lot of care for what they're trying to become and how they can help the cause, help the business, help the culture, then I think there's something there. But you use that word love, and I know it's that word can be tossed around a lot. You know, a lot of words, right? You you, you were kind of going on this too in the corporate world that you just customer service and all these these big terms are thrown around and I've seen and I've lived in. It's like, oh, they're just saying that. It doesn't mean anything. It's worse when you say it and you don't actually... You don't live it, right? You don't implement it. Mm-hmm. But talk a little bit mm-hmm. about... And that's obviously a podcast that people can go listen to. All these are in the Focus 3 podcast. But that loved one... And there's other ones I want to touch on too. That's an important piece because it's... And Irv Meyer talked about this. It can be tough love. It doesn't always have to be, oh, you're doing so great and I'm so proud of you. And blah, when you're not, this is the way it's going to be. And we're going to do hard conversations that there might be tears involved, there might be emotion involved. That's tough to do. I have a hard time with that because I'm an emotional person. And to have a hard mm-hmm. conversation with someone else could lead to a lot of emotion, but you have to have those to get to that. And, and you see breakthroughs. And what happens is on the other end of it, if that person really cares and you truly care, and there is, like you said, love there, it's amazing what can happen on the other end of that conversation. Am I right? Yeah. And, and if people have listened to or they can listen to that podcast on love, you're right. Love is poorly defined in our world. And I've studied the Greek language and classical Greek, not modern Greek. 
there are three basic words for love in classical Greek, and they are eros, philia, and agape. And the love I'm talking about is the third, is agape. Eros is feeling love. Philia is friendship love. And agape is, here's our word uncommon. It's uncommon commitment. It's selfless. And eros, we get the word erotic from it, which, you know, sexual stuff, but that really means just any kind of a feeling. And like, I love beer and pizza. Eros, you know, I, I, it tastes good, right? I like, I like pepperoni and ham and, and I like a good yingling and that, that's a, but that's eros and, and, and that's a lower level kind of a love. It's not bad. It's just appropriately used. It's great. Philia means shared interest. And it, it's it's brotherly love. It's you know, I, I love fishing, right? right? I mean, philia. I love fishing, and somebody else loves fishing. That's great, and that's good. But but if the shared interest goes away, the love goes away. Agape is, is totally different. Agape is uncommon commitment towards somebody else, and it's not attached to feelings. And it's not attached to shared interest. It's simply attached to helping somebody else get better. It's doing things on behalf of someone else's growth of someone else's success. It's serving other people, helping other people. It goes back to what I said a moment ago. Today I get to lead purposefully with energy, serving people, solving problems. That's essentially agape. I'm going in the building to go serve and to, to support and to help. And that includes having difficult conversations with people. If I know someone needs to hear something and I don't speak up, I don't really love them. Yeah, it's uncomfortable because it's emotional. Well, agape is not driven by emotion. It's driven by commitment. Uncommon commitment. Love is a motive and a method. Both. It's a motive and a method. And if I truly love and care and committed to somebody, I will do everything I can to help that person succeed and go to the next level. But if I'm driven mostly by feelings or mostly by shared interest, if it's eros or philia, that's lower levels of love. And I'll back away from the difficult conversation. But if I'm driven by agape, uncommon commitment, selfless commitment to somebody else, I'll do the uncomfortable thing to help that person get better. Yes, love is huge. I, I say this all the time to leaders. Elevate your love without lowering your standards. And that takes agape. Elevate your love without lowering your standards. If you love somebody and then you push them hard, that's a phenomenal combination. But you can only push people as far as the level of trust and love you built with them. If I don't really trust you, I'm not going to let you push me hard. If I do trust you, I'll let you pushed me really hard. Job one for a leader is build a relationship. That's good. Job one for a leader, build a relationship. And we talk about relationships in business, right? Some sort of every business is selling at some level. And you want to build a relationship with the people that you're working with. And you're not only the outside people, it's internally building relationships like you're saying internally. Yeah. There's a component of being mentally tough in this as well. I mean, all this stuff relates, of course. And I think this was in the podcast right before Urban joined your podcast. But he was 50. This one is 49, mentally tough. There's a lot there. And you actually met... It was funny because I was listening to it. And you mentioned, this is one that you need to listen to over and over again. And it was... Because I was just thinking, I was like, I'm going to need to listen to this one again, for sure. Because you use this great analogy of traffic. So I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. And Charlotte's got this incredible growth. And all of a sudden, I'm driving down the road and I'm on these streets, which there was never traffic. And all of a sudden, there's all these people here. And there's a lot of... So I, I finally went to the... Found the positives in it. It's like, it's an amazing city. People want to be here. A lot of opportunities, new restaurants, sports teams, right? All this stuff's happening. But at times, 
you could be like, man, this is frustrating. And you could be mad about it. So like, I'm going to drive my girls to school. We have a lot of fun. Next thing you know, inevitably, someone's going to cut you off. They're in a rush. They're going to tailgate you. All these different things happen. And your mind's going to get shut down. You're going to get really angry. And you see it. You see other people doing it. You might be doing it yourself. But you had this whole thing about being mentally tough to where you've already had... You set the anchor. You know it's going to happen. right? No different than when you walk into the office and you have this person there. And you have this commitment to this person. And you want them to succeed. And you want the business to succeed. But there's something there. Whatever. It could be a, a negative. It could be overly happy. It could be... Maybe you have this perception they're not getting the job done. You just don't know. And every time you see them or every time they speak, it's just like you're going to go there. But you have to be mentally tough to anchor yourself to think about the ways that there's something good here. Because you can't possibly be happy all of the time. There are going to be things that set you off. But that mentally tough component, of, of course, applies to being uncommon. It applies to having this unwavering commitment because the leader has to think through how are they going to make this possible for everyone? How are they going to give everyone the opportunity, the hope and the opportunity that you guys talk about as well, to continue to go forward? And so you as a leader don't get overly stressed out and frustrated and angry. And I, that goes a lot to being mentally tough, right? That was a big episode. I mean, all your stuff is and your, your snippets on LinkedIn or videos and keynote speeches and the work that you do. But being mentally tough applies a lot of this because like we talked about before, things aren't going to go your way. As you said, everyone in, their, in the audience raises their hand. Of course, everyone's given up on something. There's always been something there. It might be something small, maybe something big. But being mentally tough is like you said, grit. There's a lot in that. And I want to just touch on that podcast, if you will, of those episodes that I just talked about in traffic and being in the office. And you talked about, I believe that you, you gave him a fictional name of Fred. And you know, Fred maybe has a lot to offer, but you get very frustrated every time you see him. So what are you going to do about it? Yeah, I think you go back to that phrase, Eric, of mental toughness. Obviously, I believe in it deeply. But it's one of those terms that is used all the time. And I don't think people understand what it is. They definitely lack, I think, a lot of people lack the how-to mechanics in it. And the reality is that your mindset, your emotional state is a key driver of what you do and how you do it. That's life. Your attitude, your emotional state, your mindset is a huge driver of what you do. You operate at your best. You do your best work when you're in a positive and productive mindset and you are not at your best when you're not. And what mental toughness is, and make it real simple, is the ability to create the emotional mindset and energy that you need to take the action and the situation you're in. It's the ability to create the emotional state necessary for the situation that you're in. And we use the term emotional agility because different situations call for different mindsets. And the ability to get into the productive emotional state for situation A, you mentioned driving. So when you get in your car and you drive and the, the freeways are in Charlotte, you better be in the right mindset to handle that traffic. When you get to the office, you better be in the right mindset to handle the stuff that's going to happen in the office. You go to pick up the girls at school, you better be in the right mindset to be with your girls. You then have a conversation with your wife, and you better be in the right mindset. You can be agile emotionally. And you may have to have like seven or eight different mindsets throughout the day. It is a skill. It's a competency. 
It's the ability to get into that mindset that the situation requires. And there's mechanics involved. There's technique involved. The vast majority of people that I observe are not emotionally agile. They're just not. There's a con- they're, they're fragile. They're not agile. They're fragile. Mm-hmm. And as soon as something disruptive happens, they're not emotionally equipped to handle it. And they get upset. They get angry. They get depressed. They get fearful. And most of the things, not all the things, but most of the things that people get upset about are predictable. They knew they were going to happen. You use the example of driving like I do. You're going to get tailgated when you drive. It's going to happen. If you get angry, it's because you're an amateur at driving. You're an amateur emotionally. And, and, and you know, there are a lot of amateurs out there. But if you drive, you're going to get tailgated. You're going to get cut off. Why get angry? You know it's going to happen. Be prepared. It is not mentally tough to get angry when somebody does something weird on the highway. Of course that happens. I use flying as an example in an airport. You know if you fly with any degree of regularity or even irregular, mm-hmm. there's going to be delays. There's going to be long lines. There's going to be unhappy people. There's going to be flight cancellations. It's going to happen. You get upset, you're an amateur. I have taken this last year to challenging my audiences. Don't be an amateur at your life. Meaning, the situations that pop up in your life, in your marriage, your friendships, your business, when you're driving, you're traveling, don't be an amateur. Meaning, don't allow yourself to get pulled into a negative emotional state in response to the inevitable situations you knew you were going to face. That's an amateur. Be a pro at your life. It's going to happen. Be prepared. And if you're not prepared, that's a you issue. So mental toughness is the ability to get out of a disruptive emotional state into a productive emotional state immediately. And it's a skill. And here's the really challenging thing back to what I said a moment ago. It's not a feeling. It's a disciplined choice. And it has to do, we don't have time to get into all the details, it has to do with focus and self-talk. Because those are the two things that create your emotions. What you focus on, give your attention to, and how you talk to yourself. That's how you produce emotion. So if someone tailgates me and I focus on myself, how irritated I am, and I call the guy a moron, I'm going to feel negative, combative, and I'm going to be upset. And I created that. He didn't. I did. I could have said to myself, I could have focused on safety. Then I could have said to myself, you know what? Be safe. Just let the guy go. Check my side view mirror and move over. Let him go. Could have done that. But if I choose a negative focus, a negative self-talk, I will produce negative emotion. That guy didn't do that. I did. Does that make sense? It does. Well, I rewound on that podcast many times because you talked about if you focus on yourself, yeah. if you focus on things that you yeah. don't like, or you focus on things that make you mad. Because yeah. the other thing you can do is do something about it, right? I believe is make a change in whatever your habits are and whatever you're doing every day to become better. But you use the word amateur and the way you say the word, yeah, you're an amateur. Like that's a hard, again, that's a hard truth. You know, we could say it with friends and you can kind of joke around, but there, you use the word being elite or you're being an amateur. And <laughs> you just hear that. And when you hear it coming from someone like yourself, you're like, ooh, that hits you right there. Like, what are you going to do about it? And that's, again, that's yeah. a hard truth. It's motivating. And I want to touch on motivation because I know Urban Meyer is considered a master motivator. And there's a lot of, Talk about motivation, and I, I just want your take on this because I'm not sure what you know. Because motivation's fantastic, and there's a book by David Goggins, "Can't Hurt Me," and he says 
motivation's great until if your plan, let's say, was to run every day for the next three months, whatever. And you live in Chicago and you walk outside and next thing you know, it's 20 degrees and 30 mile an hour winds. Your motivation just got real low at that moment and you go back in bed. It's more of a habit of consistently being inspired. But you guys study this in motivation. So I just wanted to talk about that topic because I hear it out there quite a bit. These conversations Mm -hmm. are motivating. But at some point, you're not going to be there, Tim, to tell me what I should do or tell this other person what to do. And I could put the podcast in or I could you know, seek this thing out. You got to find ways to motivate yourself. But talking a little bit about motivation and being consistent with it. There are four huge motivators and for humans. Pleasure, pain, purpose, and people are the big motivators. And I'll draw a line of a purpose. I'll do pain and pleasure below the line, and I'll do purpose and people above the line. Pain and pleasure, we're, we're motivated to avoid pain and pursue and experience pleasure. And we share those motivators with animals. Animals have the same thing. Animals are motivated to avoid pain, and they're motivated to go towards and experience pleasure. Those are animalistic motivators. And if that is all that motivates a person, then they're going, not going to achieve greatness. Higher level motivators are purpose and people. And what we see in elite organizations is when there's a collective shared purpose and a collective shared commitment to each other on the people side, that I will do uncommon things because of an uncommon commitment I have to my brothers or sisters or my family or my team because we also share this uncommon purpose. And the differences between those is enormous. Now, there's another key motivator, that's power. And that's unfortunately off to the side, but we're seeing a lot of it today in politics. It's been around a long time. It's not unique to the 21st century America, but there are a lot of people out there motivated by power. And that's a very, very seductive and dangerous motivator because people will do virtually anything to go get power. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really too bad. And it's, it's very destructive. You see it a great deal in politics today. And, and we better figure out how to fix that culturally or we're in trouble as a nation. But back to the other ones, pleasure, pain, low-level motivators, purpose, people, high-level motivators. And what you see in elite people, elite teams, elite organizations is they're motivated by their commitment to the common purpose and motivated by their commitment to each other, the people side of it. And the other thing, way to look at it is extrinsic versus intrinsic motivators. And the extrinsic motivators are money, notoriety, popularity, rewards, interests or motivators is this, I want to be this kind of person. My purposes, my principles, my values, my beliefs, things inside of myself. And intrinsic motivators are unlimited in their capacity to inspire. Extrinsic motivators are extremely limited. Extremely limited. They're really interesting. Intrinsic motivators are unlimited. You'll see people intrinsically motivated. They just keep... That, that's where relentless comes from. Mm-hmm. In fact, I remember this. I won the national championship in my track event as a high school senior. Two of them. I ran two different meets. One in Chicago, one in California. I'm from Ohio. I ran this, these two races, uh, All-American Track and Field Championships and the Golden West. And I remember crossing the finish line both times. And the second one, I tied the meet record and it was all really cool stuff. And I remember how unfulfilling, relatively speaking, the actual achievement of it was. Huh. But you set this goal and 
You want, you want to, I won the state championship as a junior and I'd won all these meets and, but then the national champion, number one in the country. Oh, wow. You know, and I remember winning it and crossing the finish line. And I kept like grabbing the air, like I'd want to feel what I thought it was going to feel. And it, there was much greater joy and fulfillment in doing the work mm. than there was in achieving the goal. Yeah. And that's the difference between intrinsic versus extrinsic. And what we find is the really, really high level competitors are intrinsically motivated. The joys in the journey, not the destination. And the joys in the journey, yeah, there is. And then you do it with other people. When you're on that journey with others, that's really powerful stuff. So they talk a lot about who's they, but it's been talked about, right? People can build a business and then they sell the business and they thought that was their dream all along and then they don't know what to do with themselves. They're, the fun was in yeah. that they realized the fun was actually the journey. It wasn't that final destination. Or doing, doing the work. Or you look at sports, right? You win the championship. Well, <laughs> it's not very easy. You know, in a, in a college football, there's 120 something teams. Maybe there's not 100, whatever the number is. They all can't win it, right? NFL, there's 32 teams. There's this journey that you go on. And we talked about it. Enjoy the journey. And you can look back in history of professional sports and these amazing players that never won the championship. You know, like basketball, Patrick Ewing, Charles Barkley. They happened to be alive. They happened to play during the Michael Jordan era. Does that make them less of a player? No. Barry Sanders, you know, Ted Williams, you go into baseball, like incredible. Some of the best to ever do it. Never won a championship. And we always wonder, like, did they not enjoy the journey? Cannot imagine. Of course they did. Right? Would they've loved to have a championship? I'm sure they would have. But it is in that process. Well, it's, and, a, it's, yeah. a, it, it's an interesting paradox that the work and the process and the passion to go pursue the championship is part of it. If there was no winning or losing, sure. a lot of the joy would be gone. If there was no championship to be won at the end, mm-hmm. it's this irony. It's this paradox where there's a goal. Go pursue it. Go pursue it. You may, you may or may not achieve it, but go, go for it. Build your team, get your people around you, and go. Overcome the obstacles, do the work, embrace the pain, say no to the things that, that are, are distracting, say yes to the things that will get you there. And there's no guarantee that you're going to win it. There's no guarantee you're going to achieve it. Ohio State, this past year, very disappointed, heartbreaking loss to Clemson in the semifinal game. But what is it ultimately going to do for the Buckeyes? It's going to motivate them to what? To go back to work here this winter and get ready to go on the same journey this next year that we were just on this past year and go to the next level. Now, if you win it, then what? Well, you you enjoy it. You do your best to enjoy it. And then what happens? You reset and go back to work. Do it again. again. (laughs) It's a a paradox. It's a paradox. Yeah. Well, isn't it a lot of aiming to be the best version of yourself? What does that mean? Where do you go? What are you shooting for? Because it goes back to that quote that I talked about in Urban's book, when he talks about this, it's like this pursuit. And it's just, it's a joy that you you love it. And it's not easy, right? You talk about the hard truths, the, the mental toughness, all these things that are happening. And you just brought up the playoff game. What an odd experience that game was. As I'm watching it, and we've talked about it, we're, my family's big Ohio State people and we root for the team. And it, but watch it. There's an example of a play that happened. And whatever, we could argue referees and all that. And it's not what this is about. But there was a play when Jeff Okuda strips the ball, Jordan Fuller picks it up, runs it in for a touchdown. As I'm watching that play out, my son's going crazy. He's very excited about it, right? I'm watching like, wow, these guys, and you read about them and you hear about what good kids they are. Not just them too, a lot of the players on the team. Then they take it away. 
That was or could have been one of the greatest plays in the history of Ohio State football. And it got taken from them. And we could argue, is it a fumble? Is it not a fumble? I think it was. I think most people would say it was. Those two kids, it was a fumble. It was 100% a fumble and everyone yeah. knows it. And they've even yeah. talked about it and they apologized for it, which is like, okay, I don't know what that does after the fact. However, that's what happened. I felt for those two, I mean, it felt for the team, but those two players were just, it was just taken from them. Now, and you watch them because you just you see what good players they are, what good people they are, and leaders that they are, and they're going to go out and do amazing things. And it's possible that they're going to do amazing things because of the adversity that they had to deal with of like, that was just a race from the record books. Now it's not because we all saw the replay and we can continue to watch it, right? But there was so much happening in that game that Ohio State has the ball and they're driving down the field to win it. And to even be in that situation, yeah, perhaps they should have run away with the game in the first half. But things happen, right? It's just football. Sports has bad play calls. There's mistakes. It's just part of the game. It's young players playing the game. To even be in that situation again, to now have an opportunity to win, it was almost like they've overcome all of that and now they're here. And then something happens, right? And I don't know what it is. And I would never blame the receiver that you know broke off his route. There's so many different things that could happen in football practice that made him think that he should... Whatever. I don't think the kids ever made a mistake on a football field as far as I can see, right? But I'm not in there. But to be in that situation, and like you just said, perhaps that'll drive them to be better. And we can go back to another, of course, another Clemson game in 2013. Ohio State lost in the Orange Bowl to Clemson. And you guys talk about this on the podcast. And I remember it. And I remember after Ohio State won the national championship in 2014, I was thinking, I'm like, that loss to Clemson is one of the major reasons why they won the national championship a year later. Because they had to reflect on what are we going to do? Because if we get in that situation again, we have to be able to stop the other team. We have to make the big moments happen on offense, whatever all those things are. I think that loss to Clemson in 13 was the reason why they won in 14. And what was crazy about that is I was, we were in Columbus for the Virginia Tech game, the home opener. I think they played Navy in the first week. They lost. <laughs> Not only did they lose that game, it didn't look like they could move the ball forward on offense. It was just a bizarre game. And I think every Ohio State fan, everybody in Ohio State would, would probably say the same thing. So after all that happened in 13, where they lose to Clemson, they come back, they're ready to go. They're, this is the year. They got these incredible players. You know, We talked about Mike Thomas before as an example. And they lose the second game of the season. It's like, well, that's over. So now what? And they ended up overcoming that challenge to then win all of their games, including beating Let Alabama. Let me give you a little and, more yeah, context. Please. Ohio State lost to... 2013 to Michigan State in the Big Ten Championship game. Then they lost to Clemson yep. in the Orange Bowl. Then they played poorly but still beat Navy. Then they lost to Virginia Tech in the home opener. Ohio State lost three. They were at four games. They lost three of those four games. <laughs> so that four-game stretch, Ohio State only won one game against a far inferior opponent, and, they, and Ohio State didn't look good doing it. And they got walloped by Clemson, Michigan State. Whatever. Those were close. But, right, and then right. Virginia Tech. So that's what's uncanny about that 2014 team was that it wasn't just the loss to, to, to Virginia Tech. It was the fact that that was the third loss out of four games. And now, now what do you do? I mean, you sit back and talk about reflection, talk about awareness, talk about noticers and truth tellers, talk about mental toughness, talk about uncommon. 
talk about purpose and people versus pain and pleasure. That was the, that was a defining moment for that entire football team. Now what are you guys going to do? And that team and that coaching staff. And, and the other thing is that, that we poured so much into the team, coaches and players in terms of training, not just physical, but mental and cultural and trust and relationships. And Urban just kept with it tenaciously. You know, I did my part and that team just got better and better every single week. And it was an uncanny year. But just keep in mind that, that after that Virginia Tech loss in that home opener, that was three of four that we had lost. Yeah. So things were not trending in a national championship direction at that point. Not at all. <laughs> well, and then you have the outside influences, right? Because now you have the media and the fans. And I'm sure you oh, all yeah. can do the best sure. that you can do to block the noise. But it's a big conversation. And these players hear it. They're going to class. The coaches hear it. They're, the TV's on, right? It's hard to avoid it. There's a whole topic right there, management yep. of attention. I, I would argue that maybe one of life's most important skills, well, I, I referred to it earlier, clarity of vision determines quality of response. What you choose to pay attention to, what you, what you focus on, what you give your attention to, what you say no to, what you filter out, is arguably life's most important competency. Yep. And we live in a very, very, very noisy world. There are so many things today that we give our attention to that don't deserve our attention. I, I've got the statement I make all the time. Just because something gets your attention doesn't mean it deserves your attention. And college athletes, college students, high school kids, so many people are distracted by things that are attractive, but not relevant or even toxic. I all the time, when I speak to, to athletic teams, whether college, pro, or, or high school, I lift up my phone and said, how many of you are paying attention to social media that at least that doesn't matter. It's just not that important. It's distracting or is even toxic for you. And it gets so quiet in those team rooms when I ask that question because they all know that they're giving their attention to things that do not deserve their attention. There's so much noise out there. But that's true for the average 55-year-old person as well. Sure. It's not unique to a 20-year-old college athlete. That, that is something that people have got to pay attention to what they pay attention to. And management of attention, management of focus is huge. Sure. And watching how other people respond to these things. So you can watch someone like an Urban Meyer who goes through the media gauntlet, right? False accusations, all of this stuff playing out. And then you turn on the TV and there he is on Fox Sports. There he is leading classrooms at Ohio State, assistant AD, working with you, having these conversations. No one's dealt with it to a you know a lot of people have, but right, he's dealing with it to another level, and he's overcoming it. And obviously, that has a lot to do with his relationship with you. And as we if we can sit back and just forget even anything that's being said, and just watch someone else play this out, because if anyone deserved to say enough's enough, I've had enough, I can't deal with this anymore, it would be him because I've never seen someone have to go through all this stuff. And you hear all these people saying they're all these experts out there. And it's all baloney, right? It's ridiculous. Unfortunately, that's the nature of social media and sure. mainstream media today is it's all about clicks and it's about right. salacious accusations and it's about... So you pay it no mind, right? You just move on or you pay it and then you learn from it and you move forward. You do what you can. Right. You, you do what you can. I mean, there's, there's strategies to be deployed, but there's sure. certainly no, no avoiding it. It's going to happen. And, yeah. and if you're coaching... A major college football program, particularly the Blue Bloods, right? 
the Alabamas, the Ohio State, the Clemsons, the USC used to be these big programs. You're going to be in the eye of the media. You're going to. They're going to be scrutinized. Sure. It comes to the territory. And back to mental toughness, you better have the you better have the right mental framework to be able to navigate that because it goes with the territory. Well, and I think anyone leading a business, I mean, we had this situation where we're running an insurance brokerage agency and we started creating content and then we started doing marketing and we started helping other business leaders out there with their content, with producing podcasts and blogs and social media, all these different things. And at first, people were like, they doubt you. They question, you can't do that. You do this. They put you in this box. And so again, it's not even close to on the level that we we're just talking about with coaching a major college football program. But I think leaders deal with this thing in different ways. And how do you overcome that? How do you rise to the challenge? How do you continue to stay strong in your convictions and continue to learn and to be better for it? And I know I got to let you go soon because I appreciate all the time you've given us. We didn't get a lot to talk about your past. And you've mentioned UCLA. We brought up John Wooden. And I just want to touch on that quick because... He had this book, Wooden on Leadership. And early on in that book, there's this line. And they were wondering, how did John Wooden set all these records? How did he win all of those games? And there was this line in there and it said, he taught good habits. That's it. Like It was that basic to the point of what kind of socks players wore, how they put their socks on, little things like that, getting into the habits. And like you're talking about, of being mentally tough, of making sure you have this person that's going to give you the hard truths and all these different things. But clearly, John Wooden had an impact on you to where you are today. And so you go to UCLA after Ohio State at college, and you must have learned a ton. And there's obviously some history to where, Tim, you get to this point of being this leader, of helping other leaders out of giving your time and energy and spending over an hour with us, which we're grateful for. But just want to touch on that before we do say goodbye today about John Wooden's impact on you. Yeah, it was unique. I was a track athlete. And the locker room for track and field was in the same building as basketball. They were the only two sports in that building, Poly Pavilion. And I had the opportunity to interface with Coach Wooden informally as well as some non-athletic related things we did together. And he had already won eight national championships and won two more while I was there. And I had the unique opportunity to see him and watch him and then learn from him and then get some informal mentoring from him on how this works. And it was that in reading Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, <laughs> yeah, that really got all this started for me. And the thing about Coach Wood, and the first thing that got my attention was that he was intense, but never angry, this, which, which I've never seen before. I had always experienced intensity in sports, as, from coaches anyway, as anger. And then the second thing that I saw was he was a consummate educator and teacher. That he taught, he taught about habits, he did. He taught physical habits, he taught mental habits. He talked academic habits, and it was just the fundamental. He taught, he taught, he taught, he taught, he taught. And he had a way of doing that. There was a cadence to his education. And he said, the job of a coach is to communicate, educate, and motivate, not intimidate. That's something he talked to me about. And I really took that to heart and began to pursue tools, if you will, practical tools to make that happen. So, yeah, yeah formative, huge. 
I would imagine set you on this path. I heard helping others to achieve their own greatness by helping the organization to succeed. There's a lot about what you're talking about here. And then you talk about Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. It's funny you say that. I read this book this past year. I would have loved to have read it when I was younger, but you know what? It came to me this year. And when did you read that book? Was that back in college, after college? No, it was... Like 1972, okay. 73, yeah. Yeah. Right, right when I got to UCLA. Okay. Well, amazing stuff, Tim. I appreciate it. I know you're under the weather before I have this podcast. So, I mean, you're living proof that just keep going, have the grit, like you mentioned before. Appreciate the time, the insights on everything that you provided. I would encourage anyone to check out the Focus 3 podcast. Tim, where can anyone who's listening to this learn more about you, engage with you, perhaps on social media or on your website? Yeah, I'm at Timothy Kite on Twitter, and that's K-I-G-H-T, at Timothy Kite, also on LinkedIn. And our website is Focus3.com. And you mentioned our podcast, Focus3 Podcast, is on all the platforms, and would love to have people visit and uh, listen. Well, thank you, Tim. Thank you again for your time. Awesome, Eric. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. One of my favorite things about our Sportsypreneur content platform is the opportunity to chat with amazing people in and around the world of sports. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you want to connect more, hit us up on Instagram at Sportsypreneur. Thank you for listening to this CadSource production, the Sports Epreneur podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide. Mm-hmm.